Good morning, everybody. How are you feeling? Yeah. Friday. Uh, quite a lot in front of us. Thank you for coming in. Well, I know it's early. Maybe for you East Coasters, this feels like mid-morning. Uh, if I could ask your indulgence for a quick minute, uh, as uh, I hope I've had the chance to speak to almost every single one of you, and thank you personally for hanging with us and uh, rolling through some of the changes that we made. Uh, we are deeply grateful, and I hope that you understand that the reasons that we did this was a deep purpose behind this. Earlier this year, I was introduced to a woman whose name is Donna Hicks. Uh, Donna is an academic uh, and uh, teaches from time to time at Harvard University. She's written a book, which I highly recommend, called Dignity. And the concept of dignity, she believes, is incredibly important to help solve some of the intractable, long-standing problems that we face here in the United States and around the world. Understanding the construction of what the word dignity is and the way that Donna describes it is this. It's pretty simple. If you would, each of you maybe just help me. Take your arm, if you're lefty or righty, take your arm, hook it, and go like that. Okay, it's like you're holding a baby because that's how Donna defines dignity. Dignity is that every human being is priceless and every human being is vulnerable. And that's what a baby is, right? They're priceless because they're irreplaceable, right? And they're vulnerable because they're an infant. They simply re require help to survive in the world. And so dignity is something that we each have. It's incredibly vital for us to honor it. And that's what we have done by coming here. And so right now, I hope that you'll take a moment and respect the dignity of Consuela Escorcia from local, or Unite Here, Local 2. She works as a lobby attendant at the Marriott Marquis. It's a different property than where we were supposed to be. But she is mindful of what you and I have done over the last couple of days and had a few words she'd like to share. Consuela. Good morning. My name is Consuelo Escorcia, and I am lobby attendant at the Marriott Marquis. I have been working there for more than 29 years. I want to thank you for, for honoring our strike and moving your event out the San Francis Hotel. We are fighting with Marriott because one job should be enough. If enough to support our families, have a good care and, and benefit, and secure our jobs. I say one job need to be enough because some, most of the time we working so hard, we working 16 hours, my co-works always, most of them need to have one, two, or three jobs, uh, and we don't have time to spend with the families. We leave the house like six o'clock and come back 10 o'clock, and I think it's not fair. We need to spend time with our kids or grandkids. 
over the three years, Marriott has had staff cut hours have and have combination jobs. They have to grow in the, the new technology and, and eliminate the whole departments. We deserve to have a seat at the tables when they do these things. We are now on a strike in 23 hoteles across the country, almost 8,000 8, Marriott workers are all together. All my brothers and sisters, we are on the streets feeling cold. Uh, the weather sometimes in San Francisco is not good, but it's hard, I know. But for sure, uh, we will win. If you would like to join us, we are marching today at 430 at the Market Street. We love you. We love to you to have your support. Thank you. And have a good day. Thank you. Muchas gracias, Consuelo. Uh, now I'd like to, if I could, take your attention to uh, the rest of the stage. I'm going to be inviting on now our panel. We plan to have a conversation about a complex, thorny, and, and as yet unresolved problem that's facing the city of San Francisco and many cities around the United States. Uh, questions of how to provide housing and how to make a city affordable so that one job can be enough. Uh, and the problem that we face for many people who are experiencing homelessness. Quite sure that many of you have seen individuals uh, in that circumstance over the last few days. So I'd like to bring on to the stage now uh, Fred Blackwell, the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. He has been a moral leader here in the city and across the country. He's going to moderate our conversation. He'll be joined by Mayor Libby Schaff. Why don't you all come on out? Mayor Libby Schaff of Oakland. Angela Jenkins of Kaiser Permanente, Caitlin Fox of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Dr. Jennifer Martinez of Pico, California, and Sandhya Dirks of KQED. We're incredibly grateful for their time and their generosity. And uh, enjoy the conversation. Fred needs to get his microphone on. So we'll be getting started in just a quick moment. Incredibly grateful that you guys rallied and came out uh, early this morning. Are you guys getting fed? Yeah? Any questions I can answer for you before we head into the day? 
ideally not math questions. And there's Fred. <laughs> Thank you, I had to make my grand entrance. Um, so it's a pleasure to be uh, with you all this morning. Uh, and uh, what we wanna do is kind of present to you uh, the complexity of the housing crisis uh, affordability problem that we have in the uh, Bay Area here and kind of give you a sense of, of both the scope and scale of the problem, but also kind of how we as a group of folks who actually we all work together quite a bit on this issue around some of the solutions that we are um, working on. And then also kind of what we think is some of the kind of ways that we talk about this in ways that not only uh, get people here in the Bay Area to understand the, the depth of the problem, but also uh, move people to action, which I think is the most important part uh, of this. We have a short amount of time, and so we're gonna just try to uh, go through this in a way that kind of sparks some dialogue and then gets you uh, engaged. But I just wanted to say uh, a few things about it before uh, kind of jumping in. Um, one is I think, you know, we are sitting here uh, in San Francisco uh, but the housing uh, issue here in the Bay Area is one that is very much regional in nature. Uh, and so what you'll hear from uh, all the folks who are gonna speak to you this morning is both kind of the, the part of this that really gets down to a neighborhood uh, and community level, but also kind of scales up to uh, a regional level. And when we talk about solutions, what you'll hear is a variety of things that go from uh, the things that local jurisdictions can do all the way to advocacy and legislative approaches that we uh, are all thinking about in terms of what the state can do uh, to help us here uh, regionally. I think the second thing that you know, I wanted to mention uh, is that we are talking about an issue uh, that has impacts uh, across sectors and across a variety of stakeholder groups. Uh, you've got up here a panel today that will kind of give you a sense of what the problem and solutions look like from a corporate perspective from a public sector perspective, from a community organizing uh, perspective. Uh, this is an issue that impacts homeowners, renters, people of various age groups, uh, people of various races and ethnicities, uh, and it manifests itself in a variety of ways. And I know uh, in your walks through uh, San Francisco, uh, going from place to place, you can see it really manifest itself in the most visible and heartbreaking ways uh, when you see the homeless issue. Uh, here in the city of San Francisco, but it's also uh, manifested and can be seen in other places as well. And so uh, we'll try to uh, draw all that out in our conversation and also kind of draw you in into uh, both uh, some insight into how we talk about it, but hopefully some advice around how you might help us talk about it. Um, Mayor Schaff, I'd like to start with you. Uh, and uh, can you just kind of give us a little bit of kind of detail on how this issue um, presents itself in Oakland and the kinds of um, uh, uh, issues and challenges that it presents to you as mayor? Sure. Um, Oakland is, the, for those of you who might not know, the city just on the other side of the Bay Bridge. And we are a city of about 425,000 people. San Francisco is roughly twice our size. And San, Francisco, uh, San Jose is probably two and a half times our size. But we're part of this Bay Area region, nine counties, more than 100 cities that are very interconnected. And in Oakland, since 
2011, we have seen rents go up 52%. In fact, for a while there, we found ourselves to be ranked as the fourth most expensive city in America to live in. And trust me, uh, three of the other four were also in the Bay Area. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, our housing prices have more than doubled during that time period. And there is this deep sense that longtime Oaklanders, and particularly the African-American community, has gotten pushed out of Oakland. The census results between 2000 and 2010 saw a 25% reduction in African-Americans in Oakland. And that has always been part of our identity, our, our culture. And so all these things set a stage of a lot of kind of anger, insecurity, and just um, a sense that we are in a region out of control. Mm -hmm. On the other side, right now in Oakland, we are experiencing the biggest building boom that we have seen since the 1906 earthquake. We literally have 8,600 units of housing under construction right now. Last year, we had six times the building permits pulled as we have seen uh, in any single year for more than a decade. So there's a lot of fear about these cranes that are in the air. And as we see a wealthier kind of Silicon Valley employed set of residents moving into our city, we are seeing homelessness just mushroom. Maybe that's the wrong word for it, but it just cropping up everywhere in a very in-your-face kind of visible way. So that is kind of the, the stage setting uh, for Oakland. Uh, I will just give one kind of context about how we relate to the rest of the Bay Area. And since you are all communicators, you know that we have to illustrate things through stories. And I, and I, I do have to give my hats off to you. Um, it always amazes me. I'm just finishing out my first term as the mayor of Oakland and how really possibly the most important part of my job is to be the communicator in chief for my city. <laughs> all right, let's hear it for the communicators. Um, but so how, how does things outside of Oakland impact Oakland? The city of Cupertino welcomed a new Apple headquarters. The year that that headquarters opened and 12,000 new employees started coming to Cupertino every day, that same year, the city approved permits to build only 27 new units of housing. Yeah. Dallas, we have a problem or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and so this, uh, this expansion of Silicon Valley, the fact that as a region, the Bay Area for more than a decade has been adding eight jobs for every one new unit of housing that it has been building impacts all of us in ways that are not always obvious because that Apple headquarters did not get built in Oakland. It got built in Cupertino but a bunch of the employees are now living in Oakland and doing that 90-minute commute. So it does impact us, what is happening in other cities, even though we don't see it, even though it doesn't hit 
the local newspaper headlines, but it's impacting all of us. And so that's kind of the stage of what's happening in Oakland, how people are feeling, and how it is part of a much bigger regional dynamic. Cool. Thank you. And Jennifer, I'd like to kind of draw you into this conversation as someone who has been an organizer and strategist for uh, Pico, California. I know that you have uh, been in different communities throughout the Bay Area working with families that are struggling with these issues and now you're thinking at a regional level of scale around how to be responsive to some of the challenges that are being faced by particularly the most vulnerable in the region. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the problem from your vantage point? Sure. Um, good morning. I can't see you, but I rec I'm assuming you're out there. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the challenges of this problem is that it is often um, discussed in the, in the public as a, a challenge around the economy, economic problem, and we talk about things like units of housing. Um, and uh, I'm often reminded by my own family's story that uh, housing is a very personal thing. Like if we all think about what was the home you grew up in, What's the home you don't have now? Where did you raise your children? And these are all very personal. This is a personal issue for people, whether you own your home or rent it. And oftentimes, um, in my view, renters are, are people who are not considered to be very valuable to our communities. Uh, and yet, what is happening um, throughout our country, as partly after the aftermath of the housing crisis and the, um, the Great Recession, is that most people in this country are now becoming renters. We are becoming a renter majority nation. Um, and that is certainly true in the Bay Area. We are headed in that direction. And um, the, the problem, however, is never seen as one where we need to fix for those renters. Um, and we call those things like rent control and just cause for eviction. These are terms that are used uh, and, and are policies that are passed that are kind of scary to folks. <laughs> But what we're seeing is that um, for our community to retain its diversity, for its, to retain equity, the principles and values that many of us in the Bay Area and many parts of the country, of course, espouse and want to see in our communities, if we do not have a plan for renters, then we will never get there. Um, and certainly, um, we're seeing, uh, much like Mayor Schaaf said, people being displaced. We're, we're, we're seeing what we're calling a resegregation of the region, um, where uh, people who have historically lived in, quite frankly, were, were redlined communities, communities that were uh, not allowed access to capital and resources in early part of the 20th century in this country. Um, those same people who suffered the consequences of that are now the ones also being pushed out of the region no longer able to access the prosperity that this region has to offer. Um, and so my work is, is about trying to organize those folks and demand for the kind of protections and the rights that they need to protect their homes. Um, and it's a challenge because people feel very, it, it's very personal, right? Mm -hmm. it's, not, um, it's not just a policy, it's not just an economy, it's about your home, it's about your family. Um, and people on all sides of the issue feel that way. So one of the bigger challenges has been having, how do we have that conversation together? 
Um, and that is part of the endeavor that some of us at this, on this panel have been part of for a little while. Thank you. Um, Caitlin, um, you know, when the Chan Zuckerberg uh, initiative was announced, there was a lot of both excitement and intrigue about how it was structured and what it was going to focus on. I really don't remember housing being one of the things when it was announced that that was going to be a priority area. How did you end up arriving at the fact that you needed to do some work on housing? Yeah, it's a great question, and you're right. It, when we first launched, the focus was on education and science, um, and we had been doing some work in criminal justice reform and immigration reform, and housing was not part of the plan. Um, but because in this region, as you've already heard, people are really hurting and communities are hemorrhaging their original residents, um, and it's becoming not this diverse, inclusive, equitable region that that the Bay Area has always promised to be. And actually, so one of our founders, Priscilla Chan, is a doctor at San Francisco General Hospital, which is the social safety net hospital for the region, and also a teacher at a low-income school in East Palo Alto. And her students were becoming um, homeless, living in their car, having to leave the region entirely or drive two hours in to bring their kids to school. And she also knew that their parents were both employed. And it was just really, we, we had, and so it was just, it felt like something that we couldn't, it was like a building being on fire and walking away from it. Mm -hmm. And so we just really started to dig in because we really believed that it was the most pressing issue in our own backyard. Mm -hmm. And as we kind of peeled back the onion, we just realized this is, this is a problem that is rooted in decades of segregation and, and bad policy and um, a lack of resources and innovation going into this. And so uh, it became something that we just couldn't ignore. Um, and so we've really been working on um, research to better understand the problem, also direct advocacy, supporting organizing groups both at the very local grassroots level and also in Sacramento to really make sure we start to rectify some of those bad policies, and also really stepping up and putting some significant resources into trying to figure out new approaches to delivering housing faster and cheaper and at all income levels so that while we, we do need to build our way out of this crisis and also simultaneously protect tenants who are feeling this pain immediately, and it will take so many years to build the housing that we need. We've been underbuilding for decades, and so it will take us decades to build out of that. So we also need to be very innovative in terms of how we protect communities while that happens. Thank you. And Angela, I want to bring you into this. I mean, the Kaiser has made some really exciting announcements recently around uh, its investment in housing and homelessness and those issues. Um, why is a healthcare corporation interested in this issue? Oh, where do I begin? Um, <laughs> a multiple, I mean, at multiple levels, why um, Kaiser, someone, an organization like Kaiser Permanente would want to get involved in this. Um, just for those of you who don't know, um, and this speaks to why we, we've learned quite a bit from our employee population and some of the community health work that we've done. One of the larger health systems in the, in the United States with almost 13 million members and over 200,000 employees that are impacted by the housing crisis and the affordability crisis, particularly here in the, in the, in the Bay Area. Um, but we recognize also that um, housing is linked to health, and health is housing. And um, those who are living in 
um, low-income communities and older homes um, the, that um, have children who are experiencing asthma or chronic conditions because of the housing um, are in, uh, impacted in a number of ways, whether it's they um, have great absenteeism because their kids aren't in school and the, the, the parents aren't able to work, so they're losing income. Uh, we recognize that there's a need for healthy and affordable housing in our communities, and uh, or if it's because they're long commutes and they're stressed and they and they can't spend time with their families, it impacts their health care. But also, when you have someone who's spending a family spending more than 50% of their income on on housing, we have physicians who talk about how they have some um, our members, our patients, coming in and saying they can't afford their diabetes medication because they're trying to pay their their rent or their mortgage. And so th there, there are significant health impacts not for those who are actually housed. Then you talk about the people who are um, unsheltered and living on the streets. Um, that's a whole different issue when you talk about health impacts. And there's research out there, particularly by Dr. Margot Cushell, who is at UCSF, that talks about people who are, who are unsheltered and living on the streets are about 10 years older, of, even when they're 45, they're, they're, they're showing up as if they're 55 when they're in the clinical settings because they're not able to manage their chronic condition when they're moving around and they're unsheltered. So it impacts us in a number of ways. And then, and, and then with our workforce. So we, we know that our workforce is impacted by this and many of our uh, um, folks that are working with us are on the verge of, um, could be on the verge of being homeless. And so it's something that um, our CEO, Bernard Tyson, has uh, taken to heart and has challenged the organization to try to figure out how to identify solutions to address the issue. We recognize it's a regional issue, particularly because we're regional as an organization. So that's why we made the investment to protect people, um, to preserve their housing, keep people housed, rehab their houses so that they're healthy homes, but also make significant investments in the city of Oakland with Mayor Schaff and in other areas um, <laughs> to help address the um, to help address the, the needs of the unsheltered that are currently living in Oakland. Uh, just because it's something that as an organization, uh, Bernard Tyson will say, that it's, it's unacceptable for anyone to be living on the streets in our community. And we need to take a collective approach to try to address the issue. And so as a business, we feel that we are obligated to do what we can to leverage our resources and our voice to highlight the issues and the need for us to do something at a broader scale and in a deeper way to end, to end this crisis. Thank you. And Sandy, you know, you're the one person on this panel that is actually one of the communications experts with KQED. Um, I actually have a twofold question for you. One is kind of, as a reporter, how does this manifest in terms of the kinds of stories that you all end up uh, writing? And then I know that you uh, have done a lot of work in writing about kind of how the, the the housing issue has had impacts in the suburban parts of the region. It, we often talk about it as a kind of problem in San Francisco and Oakland and San Jose, uh, but what about the smaller cities out in the outskirts of the region? So uh, one of the things I do work uh, is about kind of the, the switch, the transformation between the urban and the suburban. Yeah. Um, we, when we think about urban, we think about inner city, that's come to take on some very coded meanings. But those things aren't true anymore. Suburbs, are na suburbs and exurbs are now the most diverse part of American life, which is weird because we think of suburbs as white space. They're not. The majority of African Americans, Asian Americans, and Latinos live in suburbs. We need to start talking differently about suburbs and cities and start understanding that they are intimately connected. Many people leaving Oakland right now are going to suburbs and exurbs, not rich suburbs and exurbs, not the one from Leave It to Beaver, but places that don't have a lot of infrastructure, places that 
don't have a lot of transportation. And so we need to be thinking of ourselves as a regional place. Displacement means people are being displaced to some place. Um, so following that is really, really important. And also, you know, understanding deeper context. When we talk about being a community of, of renters, um, that's very, very true. And when, you know, home is where the heart is. Home was also, and home ownership was also a way to access the middle class. As we become a nation of renters, we also become a nation of people keeping people out of the middle class. So there's a kind of way in which this plays out in all levels. Um, you know, this housing crisis happened, and one of the things that happened was that a lot of those homes that were foreclosed on, a lot of those places did not go back into the market for individuals to own. They were bought up by corporate landlords. So we're seeing a transformation of home ownership in this country, which is part of a larger system and problem that is causing everything everyone is talking about. Um, even though you had a recovery from that housing crisis and that, and that crash, we are still at the lowest point of home ownership in this crisis. That we, we are still at the lowest point of home ownership right now than we have been since the Vietnam War. And I think talking about these things in their larger historical context is incredibly important and can sort of shock us into, into the realization that what is happening is part of a systemic issue. And stories can tell that. Thank you. So I spent most of my career in uh, local government. And as such, um, we used to do a lot of survey and polling of people in the uh, places where we were governing, and um, one of the things that was pretty consistent is when we asked people what their issues of concern were for many, many years, they would say police, potholes, and education. Uh, and now, uh, not surprisingly, folks always talk about housing uh, is one of the issues that's most important to them. But the, the fact that it's kind of important to them doesn't mean that people know how to take action how to unpack the issue, how to address the issue, and what their role is in it. So for anyone, kind of, what are the strategies that you're using nowadays to talk about housing in ways that both kind of illustrate the problem and crystallize it for folks, but also move people to action and tell them actually what they can do about it? I'll give a shout out to the Yimbies. <laughs> can I do that? Um, <laughs> For those of you who haven't heard of YIMBYs, uh, they are kind of the antidote to the NIMBYs. The NIMBYs are the not in my backyard because most people expect their government to solve the housing crisis somewhere else. They don't want their own character of their neighborhood to be changed. They don't want it to be any harder to find a parking spot and they don't want their property values to go down even though our property values have more than doubled in the last few years. This idea that we all have to participate in the solution is hard for a lot of people because as human beings, change scares us. And I just want to congratulate this kind of growing movement of people who are saying, I am for housing development. I am for the densification of cities. Not only does that add to my quality of life because I'm living in a vibrant community with a lot of people that are different than I am, but it's also the only damn thing that is gonna save our planet. Because the way that we are sprawling is not just a human housing crisis, it is also a climate crisis. So, <laughs> good, yeah. So I, I want to congratulate the Yimbys for finding themselves a better name, because Yimby doesn't sound all that serious, does it? Uh, 
So now they're talking about a Bay Area for everyone. And this appeal to a sense of fairness, of justice, of the kind of society that you would be proud to raise your children in, I think is one of the winning communication strategies. Because we all want to believe that we are good people. And so I'm very intrigued with that as part of the communication strategy, that we want to be proud of our society. Thank you. Anybody else? Um, I think, one, I think we need to talk more about the impacts like on health and on education and on communities that housing has. So obviously where you live depends, dictates where you can find a job, how long it takes you to get to your job, where your kids go to school. It also affects your, whether your teacher of your children can stay in the community. Um, in one of the school districts that we work in, um, Ravenswood, the average tenure for a teacher is one and a half years. That turnover of teachers has an incredibly detrimental effect on the, on the students. And the students are turning over as well, which also has a detrimental effect on them and the other students in the classroom. So I think we really need to not talk about just the home and the, and the housing, but also the incredible ripple effects it has on every other aspect of, of life. Um, and then I also think we need to talk about who is housing insecure in a more nuanced way. I think it's very easy to see certain people who are homeless and assume that they're mentally ill or have addiction problems, but we're not talking about the person who's working three jobs and has two kids and is an incredible mother and is doubling up on her sister's couch and moving every three weeks and you know, it's just that, or those are the people who are truly housing insecure in the Bay Area, and we're not talking about it in that way. We're talking about the haves and the, and the you know, have-nots and the mentally ill, and we're not talking about anyone in between, and the incredible detrimental effects that this crisis is having on them. And so I think if we start to tell some of those stories, we start to just tap into, a, hopefully, an empathy that we all have for that, um, and to be able to see ourselves a little bit more in each and every person who's experiencing this crisis. If I may add yeah, on to that, sure. um, when it's relating to the homeless population, I think it's really important also to, de to debunk the myths related to why people become homeless. And uh, we were talking about the statistics in Oakland about how the number, what you said, the 80, large percentage of, indiv of individuals were living in Oakland within the year before they became homeless in the first place. These were people who were living in Oakland, working in Oakland, building Oakland, that were displaced by people moving in. And you know, as I started this work, some of the things that people said to me were, you know, people just don't want to be helped you know, or people want to be homeless. They don't want to live on the streets. The worst one that I heard was someone saying, watch, seeing somebody pushing a cart of cans to go um, turn them in said, well, he didn't try hard enough in school. And I was just looking at this woman that I was giving a ride, her and her son a ride to school because she didn't have a car, and saying, I can't believe that you just said that. So I think yeah, there's, every, every person who's living unsheltered has a different story about why they got there in the first place. Was it, was it a traumatic event? Was it, um, you know, maybe they were um, using substances too much and they, got, they couldn't afford their rent anymore and they were pushed out on the streets or they had some family issues. But many of these individuals are connected to families. They're not disconnected like we think they are. They may have mental health issues. Um, but it, we need to really begin to tell that story to, dem, to demystify, you know, um, um, battle those myths 
um, bring out the humanity, bring some dignity to them so that people really understand what, what are the conditions that they were facing that got them to the place that they are in right now. And I think using, using storytelling as a really important way of doing that, um, to your point, to, to talk about who these are families, these are individuals, these are people who have been working really hard that have ended up in the place that they are. And I think um, that's one way as a communication tool that we can begin to raise up um, the, the true story behind why we are in the position that we're in right now with the explosive host, uh, homeless population. Before you go, Jennifer, I just wanted to kind of invite you to talk a little bit about one aspect of this. I mean, Mayor Schaaf really highlighted the fact that um, there are 8,000 units of housing in the pipeline in Oakland and cranes up in the air like never before. One of the dominant narratives around the housing uh, issue is that we just have a basic supply and demand problem that we're not building enough housing. Why are people scared about the cranes and the, why are they kind of uh, fearful of the, of the number of units in, of housing in the pipeline in a place like Oakland? Because they know it's not being built for them. I mean, that's the, that's the truth of the matter, that the new housing that's being built by and large is luxury styled housing. Um, and the folks that are in those communities know that it's not being built for them. And we can see this play out in many ways. When there's public investment in a community, private investment follows. And if there aren't the right kind of public policies in place that will protect people in place, that will help them get access to uh, asset creation, will help them um, go to good schools so they can get good jobs, and that those jobs pay well, like a living wage, you know, like big places and companies can pay if they chose to pay, um, then they know it's not for them. If those public policies are not in place, that new housing is not for them. And the ability for private property owners to do what they will with their properties, if there aren't those public policies in place, and what I'm talking about is raising the rent. Um, I just heard a story the other day where rent was raised on a building in a single rent increase by 87%. 87% leap. Who can pay that? Who can go from um, $1,500 to almost $3,000 in a single go? It's almost impossible. So um, we know that this is public policy and, and a, a public policy challenge. And what I often say uh, in this conversation, I'm going to get to some hard truths now. I've got my coffee in me. I can actually get to some hard truths. Um, <laughs> is that there are great, that we know a ton of good solutions out there. This is not. Uh, a technical problem that hasn't been invented yet, or a solution to a technical problem that hasn't been invented yet. Um, we've built housing in this country. We've built a lot of housing in this country. We did it in post-World War period for white people in suburban neighborhoods, and we thought that was a great investment, and we should do that, and we created financing tools for it, and we created subsidizing of uh, developers and the homeowners that were gonna buy those homes. We did a ton of things to create the kind of housing that people needed, a certain set of people needed, and we can do it again. The problem is it's a political will problem. And, and we um, are faced with the challenge of, this isn't like Caitlin said, this isn't gonna take two years or three years, this is a 30-year problem across the country. We're seeing it el elsewhere, right? Um, and we live in two to four-year election cycles. 
that, that is a, a public policy, a political will problem that we have to overcome and we have to have people in place, who, the public policy decision makers who are willing to take the big risks, the big leaps, see the 50 year future of our region, our state and our country and plan for that future, not plan for the two year election cycle that they are currently um, faced with. Thank you. Sandhya, do you want to weigh in on this? Or? Preach. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it, I mean, it's very true that there are policies in place that are preventing what we need to happen. Um, and, you know, I, I think that as a storytelling tool, understanding our responsibility as part of a community and not as separate is incredibly important. It's even beyond empathy. It's sort of culpability and responsibility. So when you talk about the 82% of people on the streets of Oakland used to be housed in Alameda County in that place, if you've bought a home there, you are directly responsible for that homeless person on the street, right? You are connected to that person and you are implicit in the system. And it's how to kind of raise that awareness. And, and again, I, I'm, I guess I've had my coffee too. Um, <laughs> it, it's, how to, it's how to raise that awareness and connect us to each other in a deeper and systemic way, which we don't wanna be, right? We don't wanna think that's connected to us because that's not a nice story. It's an easier story to put it sort of in the frame of personal responsibility. But if we're actually taking personal responsibility, those who have right now got that because those of those that don't have. And, and how to change that narrative and bring that narrative forward when we're talking about housing. Um, you know, the homeless crisis isn't a homeless crisis, it's a housing crisis. And unless we solve that, unless we house more people and make that possible and make pathways for that possible, we are going to see a greater increase in in inequity in, 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 this, in this country and in this region. And it's going to become a very, very stark reality where, um, you know, the sort of the dystopian future will be here. Yes. And, and I just want to add to that. I think that as a, you, we do need to build more housing, but there is a certain segment of our population that's going to need subsidized housing, um, particularly for those who are homeless and need to be housed and those who may have a chronic condition or a mental health a condition, they're going to need some level of subsidized housing. And I think as a society, we need to be okay with that and accept that and be willing to support that. And I'm not, we're not there as a society. Um, not everybody's going to be able to afford to buy a house. I think housing, healthcare, education is a, just a basic right that we should, rights that we should all have. So we need to be able to tell that narrative and be able to push that envelope and tell that story that is okay to support people living and staying in their homes. Got it. In a minute, I want to get to the audience's questions, but before doing so, I'd like to end on somewhat of a high note, which is what are you excited about uh, when it comes to this issue and the things that you're working on on the solution side? I'm excited about CASA. Um, CASA is the Committee to House the Bay Area, and it's this crazy idea that we as a region might be able to enter into a set of compacts, agreements, that would have an overlay of policies that would impact every jurisdiction within the Bay Area. Uh, because the word rent control is too scary for people, we call it an anti-rent gouging policy <laughs> that would apply to the whole Bay Area. Doesn't that sound better? Um, we're not controlling your rent. We just don't want you to gouge. 
it's a, it's a good communication tool. <laughs> um, we're looking at a whole series of different types of revenue streams where if we maybe add small fees, small taxes, you know, a, a 1 16th cent increase to the sales tax for the whole Bay Area, uh, a, a small gross receipts tax on our employers or a headcount tax. Like if everybody gives a little, you know, remember that stone soup story where, you know, you brought the broccoli and you brought a chicken bone and you brought a carrot. And like at the end of the day, we had this incredible meal. But the idea that we could create a permanent funding source to create 1.6 to $2 billion a year on an ongoing basis to do three things, not just produce, although building is part of it, if we do need to produce more affordable housing that is permanently subsidized, but to also protect our renters so they can stay in place and also to preserve existing affordable housing, preserve the housing stock we have now. If we can do those three things and see ourselves as a unified region that would be amazing, and that is the charge of this group that has been meeting for about a year now, called CASA. Right. Mm -hmm. Looks um, like they found a new spokeswoman for yeah, CASA. I, 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 <laughs> no, just real quick, I'm just really excited that Kaiser Permanente is putting some skin in the game. Oh, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, with our $200 million investment in the Thriving Communities Fund, which a majority of that's going to go for protecting and preserving affordable housing. Say that number again. 200 million <laughs> national investment, social impact investment. Um, we announced in May that will be to protect and preserve affordable housing. First announcement, first investment will happen in Oakland. Um, hopefully by the end of the year we'll be announcing what that will look like. And so that's really exciting for us that um, we are expanding our thinking in terms of how we're promoting community health to include housing because we, have, we see the, the direct linkage to, to health care. And I'm hoping, hoping that as we're taking that lead we're encouraging others to do the same. And so that's exciting. That's what's exciting for me. I'm excited that this is actually a public conversation. Um, I've been working on the issue of housing for most of my career, which is coming up on 18 years. Um, and many of those years, it felt like calling into the wind. Like, this is a problem. This isn't just a problem in San Francisco, but there are structural problems that are going to be even worse, and certainly after the Great Recession when everyone's like, oh good, housing prices are going up. I was like, oh no, <laughs> this is a problem. Um, and we are here now with all of you at this terribly early time of the morning, and thank you for being here for that. But the <laughs> fact that we're all here for this terribly early time in the morning to talk about this subject, I think is, is, is indicative of how much more public conversation is being had about it. And that conversation needs to be amplified because it does have this historical legacy because it does need a set of the kinds of solutions that are being brought to the table, the kind of scales of money that are required for it, um, and the engagement of people that will need to be putting their own maybe immediate self-interest aside for a longer-term self-interest for them and their families and their neighbors. And that is a, a very exciting prospect to me that we are having that kind of conversation. And piggybacking on that, because you stole my thing I'm excited about. But just to <laughs> double click on it, I think the fact that, you know, 
the one of the New York Times best-selling books, Pulitzer Prize-winning books, two years ago was on eviction. I think that that's huge, um, and I think the fact that it's really hard to open a major publication these days and not see an article about some facet of the housing crisis. I think the fact that Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and um, uh, who's, who's the third person that's introduced? Warren. Um, or have introduced housing legislation, um, in national housing legislation, renter credits, you know, this is huge. Like, we have not been talking about housing at the national level in decades. And so those are just some things that make me really excited. What I would like to see is to open up major publications and start to see more wins and more solutions, but I think the fact that we're talking about the problem and the nuances of the problem is a really great start. I am not technically a housing reporter, but I report on equity in the Bay Area, which makes me a housing reporter. I mean, that is the kind of the new game we're in. You're absolutely right. Um, and um, I, I do think the fact that people like Matthew Desmond, who wrote Evicted, which if you haven't read, go out and read it, um, uh, they, that he's beginning to talk about housing as a human right, and that language is beginning to kind of take over is really, really important. We need to see this as a human right, right? This is not just connected, as we've said, to kind of just a home. It's so much more, it's everything. Um, and so I'm excited about that. Also, you know, let me give a shout out to Oakland. One of the things I'm excited is there are discussions in Oakland right now about having a public bank. And one of the reasons that we're in the housing crisis we're in is because of the history of banking in this country, right? Who got loans when redlining happened and who was put into certain neighborhoods? And then what happened with the bad loans and underwater mortgages that forced so many out of their homes, particularly in poor and neighborhoods of color in places like Oakland. Um, those are all connected to banks, they're connected to money, they're connected to these systems that I'm talking about. And afterwards, you were seeing a lack of um, loans, a sort of reverse redlining, a lack of loans for people of color. Um, there was one year in Oakland a few years ago where I think it was, um, I, can't, I can't remember which bank, but there was a bank that there were only three loans to black people in the city of Oakland for houses, right? So what, what about something like a public bank? Could that change the game? Could we actually get invested in this in a different way um, as communities? And I think that those solutions, those sort of seemingly radical ideas, which are actually hearkening to making a deeper community are, are really exciting. And I'm excited to see what everybody here comes up with next. Great, well, thank you. Um, we have time for a few questions. And as we go to questions, I guess there's somebody in the um, audience with a microphone. Um, and I see about, it looks like at least three or four here. Um, as, as you go to questions, tell us where you are uh, from in your name, and let me remind you uh, that a question is a sentence followed by a question mark. <laughs> um, no paragraphs or speeches, please. Go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Nora Coster. I am the communications director at Housing California. Um, thank you all for being here. This has been. Um, it's just been great to see um, that the communications network and people who are not working in housing are so interested in, in solutions and talking about housing. Um, my question is, uh, so Housing California, as you guys may know, um, is co-leading the Propositions 1 and 2 campaigns um, on the November ballot. Um, we've been doing a lot of the, the things that you guys talked about today as far as pushing stories and talking about real people and what they're struggling with. Um, to try and connect to voters, but we're finding that we're still kind of teetering at the 50% level 
as far as voter support. And so, you know, there's a lot of concern that we're not going to get Prop 1 um, to pass. And so I'm just wondering, as a communications professional, knowing that these stories are coming out, that we're doing as much as possible, and we still don't have the public and political will, what else can you recommend? What else can we do? Well, just really quickly, um, first of all, thanks for the great work you do, and, and we at CZI support Prop 1. Um, it, we've, we've given to the campaign, and we also recently um, added some support to help mobilize and organize um, affordable housing residents. Um, so I think being really, um, obviously we need to have really broad communications about this, but we also need to get back to like the grassroots, like how do we get people out that understand this problem really intimately. And so thinking really creatively about how we can engage, because as Jennifer said, we always look to homeowners. Like, they're the voters, they're the ones that turn out, they're the ones we pay attention to. How can we start to mobilize renters, and, and especially those in affordable housing, and really appeal to them, because they should, they, there's a lot of them, and they care a lot about this issue. And so really thinking about how we mobilize those communities. Can I also add, you know, you just have to appeal to people's selfish, selfish interests. People don't get that the fact that they are sitting in horrible traffic all morning is because of the housing crisis. So you have to draw that connection for them. You have to show them, especially the likely voters, why this is hurting them too. The, the, the teacher at their kid's school leaving, like th there are all these ways that people don't really see. That, that is something that I think we need to lift up more. But go props one and two. Hi, I'm uh, Clarence Jones. Um, I just want to make a brief statement and a question. Uh, with all due respect, is that I think that uh, uh, collectively is that you are Nero's fiddling while Rome burns. Is that, uh, yes, you are fiddling while Rome burns. I used to think like you think. I really did, okay. The definition of insanity, when you keep doing the same thing, expecting to get a different result. With all due respect, sir, I don't think you should tell five women up here that you know how any of us think. Okay, I apologize <laughs> for that. But let me just suggest this. Um, if you were to take and look at the balance sheet of the top 75, companies and add up the aggregate after-tax profit and, uh, of those that are doing business in Silicon Valley. And, and the question is whether or not you are reaching those companies and foundations that have the resources. That's, that's the question. Because I... I, I I, um, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to in any way insult you and so forth, but my experience as we're at a point in the seriousness of the housing crisis is the only way you're going to get the major companies is to say to them, if you don't do it, we're going to shut you down. Well, it's not going to happen. I just do it. I agree we need to get corporations and philanthropies to put in major, major resources. And that's honestly where I've personally been putting the vast majority of my effort um, because candidly, we're often standing out on our own. Um, when 
when we ha we've been investing in housing, a lot of other philanthropies and corporations are like, it's so expensive, it's so hard. I don't, and, and so we're just trying to get out there and show here's what you can do and just take a first step. Pledge that you're going to do it. Put major resources on the line. Um, be in partnership with community members who can tell you how to allocate those resources. But I think you're absolutely right. I would love to turn the mic over to Jennifer because she was part of a very wonderful pressure campaign. But I'll let you talk about it because I'll get in trouble if I talk about it because it was on our founder's company. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't hear from me. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm I'm pissed off about this. We should be. Um, one of the major challenges we have right now is that most of the companies you're talking about are global in nature. And most of the public policy making power we have is in a around this issue of housing is at the local level. I mean, you know, sometimes at the state level and sometimes at the local level. And they're competing for that tax base that those corporations give them. And so oftentimes it becomes, a, it can become a race to the bottom in terms of making demands of corporate wealth. Um, I'm pissed that Prop 1 in California is only going to be however a couple billion dollars when it should have been probably 30 billion dollars. Um, yes, we have a scale problem. And if you have ideas about how we can fix that, and we've been organizing tenants, people are protesting outside of Google on a regular basis. Uh, we are people shut down Uber from going to Oakland. Sorry, Mayor, uh, for this reason. Like, there is active public demonstration of, to, to challenge this, and it is a nut. We do not yet have a way to crack. Yeah. Back there. The mic is on. Hello? Yeah. Ah, okay, yeah, thank it. you. Um, hi, my name is Lisa Alaferis. Hi, Sandia. Um, I'm very proud to live and work in Oakland. Uh, Mayor Schaff, I appreciate what you're saying about 8,000 units coming online, but what are you doing? And, and I actually agree, yes, in my backyard. I want, we have three towers going up two blocks from where I work. That's a lot of housing. But at the same time, that housing does displace people. We have a model in Oakland, for those of you nationally, it's called Fruitvale. This is a, where housing was developed and it did not displace people. The demographics are roughly the same. What are you doing to make sure, what are all of you doing to make sure the housing is not just luxury housing, but also has an eye toward people of all incomes, the teachers and the people who are homeless and the tech bros? Thank you. So we're doing a lot of things, um, and if, for, if you want detail, please look up our 17K, 17K housing plan that a number of people up here were part of. Um, we've uh, imposed impact fees so that that luxury housing that's going up either has to include affordable units in it or they have to pay money into our uh, trust fund. We passed two local bonds, a city bond and a, a county bond to build affordable housing. We strengthened our renter protections. In fact, we've got another measure on the ballot in 20 whatever days to, to expand just cause eviction even more. Uh, we are adamantly in favor of Prop 10 to repeal Costa Hawkins so that we can strengthen uh, renter protections. And throughout California, cities can no longer be limited by the state in renter protections. Um, and then we're talking to our, our corporations. Kaiser Permanente is my largest employer. And the fact that they are willing to now contribute 
capital to be part, we're talking about finding new funding sources. Government cannot do it alone. And so this idea that we're going to go to the private sector and have you provide low cost capital to construct affordable housing. But the last thing I'll say, and this is, could open up another hour of conversation, housing is a human right. Housing is part of the public infrastructure that government has to take responsibility for. But also, unless we make people economically secure, economically empowered, the poor have been pushed off the land since there were people and property rights. And so we've got to address the economic side of this as well. And that's a whole other conversation about what we're doing in Oakland around that. And unfortunately, we're going to have to end on that note. So join me in thanking Mayor Schaaf, Angela, Caitlin, Jennifer, Samia. Appreciate your time this morning.